Well, it might be a little hard to believe, but today we're finishing 1 John. So way to go, everybody. Today we're going to be in the last few verses of 1 John, 1 John 5, 18 through 21. And I'll read that in just a little bit. When I was growing up, many of the adults in my life would pay attention to the movie reviews of Siskel and Ebert. They were a little bit like oil and water. They were kind of regular guys, and they would regularly clash about what actually was a good movie. They would give a thumbs up or a thumbs down as a way of telling America whether they should indeed spend the money and the time to go and see a film. Because they were so different, sometimes it was kind of entertaining. Gene Siskel was a journalist who also interviewed many famous people in his career on his own. And before ending a segment, he would look at the person straight in the eye and he would say, tell me, what do you know for sure? He's gone now, but if you read on his website, it says that he wanted to understand what drove the human spirit. This question, only six words in length, would cause the guest to kind of, you know, freak out a little bit, a little unscripted, and kind of get them to thinking what was really important to them. And he said, you know, the world is made up of a bunch of diverse people with their own walks of life. And he thought the world would be a better place if someone would just share one thing that they were certain was true with one another. He famously shared this question with Oprah early in her career, and it stumped her so much that it became kind of a centralized question in her life. And every, every month in her magazine, it kind of is what she ends her magazine with, something that she knows for sure. As we come to the end of 1 John, the beloved disciple of Jesus is telling us what he knows with great certainty. To the very last, John is impressing on the church to remember what is true so that we won't forget and go down other paths. Mark Twain said, what gets us into trouble is not what we don't know. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. (laughs) John doesn't want Christians to make up life and then act on it as if it were true. The group of people being addressed here have been fighting about what is so. Since truth is the core of the gospel, it's vital for Christians then and now to keep figuring out fact from fiction so we don't fall in the trap of believing something that's not from the Lord. So this is the word of the Lord from 1 John 5, 18 through 21. We know that those who are born of God do not sin. But the one who was born of God protects them, and the evil one does not touch them. We know that we are God's children, and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let us pray. Jesus, you taught us that God's word is truth. You also told us that the truth sets us free. So today we come before you seeking affirmation of what is good and right and noble and true. Holy Spirit, guide us in this time. Amen. So John ends his book with what he knows for sure, and he gives us three clear statements and one exhortation that also tells us something that's important that we should act on. 
These are words of assurance to the church. In the verses beforehand, of course, he was talking about prayer. Praying for those who were in sin. Remember that last week, the mortal sin and the non-mortal sin? Well, that's our bridge to this week and leads us to the first truth that John wants us to hold on to as something that we should know for sure. In verse 18, here it is. We know that those who are born of God do not sin. Now, this is familiar territory. We have traveled before in this letter. Choosing to live for God means that we relinquish and he takes our sin nature. The old is gone, the new has come. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. John Stott says, sin and the child of God may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. Christians are free from the power of sin to choose God's way of life, which means that we attempt to honor the Lord with who we are and what we do. But look what else John says here. He says that the one who was born of God protects us from the evil one. Putting it together, we read, we know that those who are born of God do not sin, but the one who was born of God, Jesus, that's who that is, protects them. Now, this is something we're thinking about. First, it means that we are people who need to be kept safe from spiritual harm. Do you know that? Sometimes I'm not sure that we do. We live in both realms of the earthly and the spiritual, but the danger of the evil one is something I don't know that I even fully grasp as a pastor. But scripture has a lot to say on the subject including Jesus, who modeled for us how prayer and fasting and scripture are key weapons of fighting the enemy. But let's keep going here. Jesus is the one who keeps us safe. Now that might seem obvious, but how often do we trust in our own ability to stay away from sin? We hold on to the belief that it's our choices that keep us strong in the Lord. But that is not what this scripture is saying. John is telling us that it is Jesus who defeated Satan for good on the cross, who protects us from the enemy. Protecting ourselves is not something we can do. We are not equipped for that. So let's think about this a little bit more. Staying clear of sin then isn't because Christians are more spiritual or holy than others. This is not about perfectionism, thank the Lord. Or because some are chosen or some are not. It's not because some of us are more disciplined than others. John is saying that when we are born again, then we come under a protection plan that covers our movements, that heals our brokenness. It isn't our ability to keep us from sin and harm. Jesus is working for our good, protecting us from the devil who is trying to ruin our lives. And the scripture is clear. The enemy of God is going to bring chaos and disarray and hardship, but they are blocked from destroying our lives by the mighty power of God. And we're not going to know on this side of heaven how much pain and calamity and destruction we have been saved from. Jesus teaches us to pray that we would be guided away from temptation and delivered from evil. Why does he pray that? 
God is not in the habit of irrelevancy or encouraging things that don't matter. The Lord told us to pray to be delivered from the power that seeks to harm us. And so we better take that seriously. I would encourage you to spend a little bit of time this week in John 10, where Jesus is teaching about being the good shepherd. Listen to some of these verses. Anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. My sheep will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now praise God for the positive part of this scripture. But sometimes that's all we focus on. That the Lord is the shepherd who brings us life. Amen. Hallelujah. But however... Jesus is the one who protects and sustains the sheep who live in constant danger. Our choices matter. Of course they do. But still, we have to trust how God's power is shielding us from the pull of sin and the wiles of the enemy. And John says, do not rely on yourselves. Jesus keeps us next to him. And Isaiah affirms this in 41 when he says, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. John is reminding us we don't survive by ourselves. We are vulnerable but not alone. What do we know for sure? God has our back. Next in verse 19, John says, We know that we are God's children and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. This is about belonging which is a dominant theme in John's writings. The older I get, the more I see that all of us just want to belong to someone or something so that we're not alone. We might remember the longitudinal study conducted from Harvard in the 30s that found over generations that what determines if we have a long life and a contented life is not our genes, it's not our IQ, it's not how much money we have, or our healthy habits, what matters most are the bonds that we have with one another. Humans flourish when they have a strong sense of community with family and friends and neighbors and colleagues. And this was startling to the researchers who were not expecting this. It's our relationship with one another that determined more about us than anything else. Later in the 90s, researchers at Florida State affirmed the findings from Harvard and found that our deepest satisfaction stems from having unconditional love and the unbreakable ties of belonging. So John here is affirming our connection to God, who's sacrificial and abiding and redeeming and enduring love binds us to him in ways that go far beyond this life. When we surrender to God, we are adopted into his family. We are part of Christ's body. We are no longer our own. We cling to our identity as being God's beloved children. We're part of a vast multitude of saints, both here and heaven, who worship our living God. Now, John gives a contrast between those who belong to God and those who are under the power of the evil one. We continue the theme that we just started. So to trust in Jesus 
and what he has for us means that he is Lord. He is the source of our lives. Being a Christian is an all or nothing kind of thing. And John is reminding us in his contrast that the world operates by different standards and truths. I read something that was kind of jarring to me in the NIV commentary. And I wanted just to share it with you. It kind of made me pause and made me think and made me pray in a different way maybe. The sustenance and protection of Jesus are essential because the world lies under the grip of Satan. John's imagery here is striking. The world is not under siege by Satan. It hardly struggles against him at all. The world rests in Satan's arms. See, John doesn't allow the church to be two rival camps. We can't allow ourselves to be lulled by the embrace of the enemy. I don't think this is usually our mindset either, but it will be to our detriment if we don't remember how the devil is God's adversary who actively works against him and all will always be against us who believe in him. It's not, it's not a nice story that at the end on earth it's going to ever be different. It's a stark reality that we live with every day. So we always must be on our guard because the battle rages on in the spiritual realms. God has won, but we aren't safe on the other side yet, and we must not underestimate the opposition. I want to say one more thing before we leave this part. We, as humans, usually choose to belong to the spaces where we experience love, and we find a home with like-minded people. But the emphasis here is not on the people. It's on the God who formed us, who died for us, who is coming again to bring us home. And sometimes we think about church from a worldly mindset as being a place where we go and we get our needs met and it has to work for us or we don't go there. When we do that, though, we get it backwards. As children of God, our role is to seek where the Lord would have us to serve and to worship. Where is it that the Lord would have us grow and impact the community with our gifts along with other people? Of course, there are times that God moves us on to a new place for all different kinds of reasons. But let us seek God first for the the community, the, the congregation that we would be part of and what it means to belong to the body of Christ. It's not um, really about us. It's really about God. And how is it that God wants to lead us and empower us and draw us close in those spaces? So what do we know for sure? That we are God's children and we live under his power and his grace. In verse 20, it says this, We know the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, his Son, Jesus Christ. This is saying that we don't have a blind faith, that Jesus brought a new way to the Father and gives everybody understanding so that we can know him. The last sentence in verse 20 accurately sums up the entire letter when John says, he is the true God and eternal life. So what do we know for sure? That Christ has brought the most crystallized version of reality that humanity has ever known. And this truth goes with the last verse in the letter. So I want to pause for a second to remember how this was written to John's church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a city that was proud of their many gods and all of the different ways that people worshipped. 
We talked about the Temple of Diana early, a wonder of the ancient world, a dark place of immorality and vulgarity. If a criminal could get to the temple before the authorities caught up to them, then they could stay there as long as they wanted in safety. So it was really a repository of wickedness. In a place like Ephesus, in Rome later, in any city where anything goes and few people care, it's radical to choose Jesus as the true God to worship. And here John is affirming the divinity of Christ, which is a contrast to the world. But more importantly, John is saying that Jesus is the only one who brings real life to us. Sometimes we forget that we live in an upside down place, that Jesus turned right side up. And being his disciples means that we are actively living in the reality that Jesus died to bring. So what do we know for sure? By God's grace, we know the one who is true and we live in him. Lastly, John ends on a pretty abrupt note. And the final truth being emphasized here is that idolatry is a problem for us. Instead of conveying a blessing to people or a greeting of those who he knows are present, he simply says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourself here means guard yourself. Guard yourself from idols. John is urging us that while Jesus saves and sustains us, we have to be alert and intentional about our own choices. God's job is to protect us, and our role is to pay attention to how our hearts get attached to anything more than him, because idols aren't true. In the Old Testament, an idol, of course, was a counterfeit god, anything which was given honor in place of Yahweh. And it's strange how susceptible we are as humans to give up the power in our lives to people, to inanimate objects, to things that aren't eternal. Again, this is about lordship. And so we have to ask ourselves, what or who do we allow to control us? Is there anything in our lives that has become more important than God? And it's easy for us to come to church or be with our Christian friends and to portray that everything is fine. But the Lord knows our hearts. The Lord knows where our loyalties and our allegiances lie. He knows when he has been replaced. In addition, for John, especially for John, any teaching of God that was contrary to Jesus couldn't be tolerated. Any pleasure that we get as humans from sin and from what is wicked and evil is not okay. Of course, we can do what we please. But John says, little children, beloved children, don't have idols. Don't have things that are contrary to the Lord. The Lord will not be mocked. His holiness is to be taken seriously. What do we know for sure? That we worship God alone. In 1 John, we've talked about the picture of the spiral staircase in our time together. And now we've climbed to the top of that staircase. We've looked at consistent truths that John has given us from many different angles. And now at the conclusion of our study at the top, we find that God is there. God has been with us on our journey through the word. We are grateful for the truths that we have been given. The words of exhortation that John has ended the letter with will help us to remember 
the powerful and loving and eternal God that we serve and what he has given for us. So as we close, let's just remember again why John wrote this book. To repair the divides in the church and the impact that that had on the people involved. The hope in these words is that for the church, that we would always grow in the knowledge of God, that we would stand firm in prayer, that we would shine God's light, that we would be attuned to the Holy Spirit, that we would experience true fellowship with one another and the Lord who made us. By writing this letter, John models a zeal to stand firm and to keep going even when we're discouraged and have doubts because the Lord is the faithful and one true God. What do you know for sure? Spend time in prayer with the Lord and talk to him about it. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.